We call our money currency. Have a dollar bill here in my hand. Currency is a medium of exchange. The symbols on this piece of paper have a worth that allows you to exchange it or trade it for something else. Many of you would probably like a little bit more of this currency. Be happy to give you this dollar, actually, if you need it after the service. How generous. Well, everyone has another kind of currency. And this currency directs how you interact with others. Their currency could be money, it could be achievements, job titles, physical attraction. And they trade, barter, negotiate, or withhold their currency in order to achieve their goals. And its reason, isn't this how life works? Ours is a world of recompense and retribution. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Do good to me, I'll do good to you. Do bad to me, and I will return it. If insulted, I've got to respond, or I'll be taken advantage of. If my rights are threatened, I must fight for them, or lose my currency. Relationships operate this way, corporations operate this way, and indeed, even nations operate this way. It is a tit-for-tat world. Let's put this description of human behavior into three simple formulas. One is this. When someone returns evil for good. This is rare, but it happens. If you personally experience it or watch it happen to someone else, it makes your blood boil. Second one is returning good for good. Now, this is the most common, most logical. It feels like the most sensible behavior. And without thinking about it, this law, if we can call it that, dictates the vast majority of our responses and our behaviors. The third is rare. It appears illogical, nonsensible. And when it happens, it grabs our attention. And that is when someone returns good for evil. We hardly ever see it. When we do, it stands out like in... Uh, the most recent Mel Gibson movie, Hacksaw Ridge. How many of you just, perchance, saw that movie? There's quite a few, actually, first services well here. Hacksaw Ridge is a true story of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss, for reasons of conscience, would not fire or even handle a gun. He was the only Medal of Honor winner who never fired a shot. That's Harry Truman there giving him the Medal of Honor. He fought in World War II. Doss did not have a problem with being in the military nor serving his country, but he grew up with a religious conviction against killing, and on top of that, he had an experience early in his life uh, involving a gun after a fight with his dad and his uncle, seeing a fight between his dad and uncle. He signed up voluntarily with the agreement that he could serve as a medic, but when he arrived at basic training, he quickly became an outcast. His shyness and his small stature did not help either. His fellow recruits believed that when they got to the place where real killing would occur, Doss would hurt more than help. Doss was the object of physical and psychological abuse as captured in this video. Let's take a little, take a view of this clip.
great, great scene. Great scene. Well, Doss, for himself, loved his fellow soldiers despite the abuse, became a medic, and in one unbelievable night on a place called Hacksaw Ridge in Okinawa, Doss saved dozens of his fellow soldiers and former abusers. When you're watching the movie, it almost feels like what he did felt supernatural, like you were watching some sort of a superhero in a cartoon. And it would be very hard to believe this story unless there had been literally dozens of eyewitnesses. Doss, for his own life, said, well, I saved about 50, but the accumulation of eyewitnesses said it was 100, so the story sits at 75. Returning good for evil is so exceptional, it is shocking to our senses. At the premiere showing of Hacksaw Ridge, the audience responded with a spontaneous outburst of applause and standing ovation for 10 minutes. Now, let me say a couple more things before we go to our text. We'll go to our text here, and it's already been introduced to us. But before I do that, I want to say just two things. One is that... This is a hard movie to watch. It is R for good reason. It is very realistic. Be warned if you see it. And it is not a movie for children. But let me say something else as well, because it does relate to our topic. In using this example, I want to make sure that you know I am not inserting an opinion. I am not making a judgment on serving in the military or using a weapon in that context. I believe that this is a matter of personal conscience. I believe the church should respect the beliefs of its individual members. Knowing this to be a decision where differing convictions can find a reasonable ground in the scriptures. Now, Doss is the antagonist quoted from Jesus. Let's look at his words now. Will you stand, please? Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. It's page 810 in the Bible in front of you, if you want to follow the scriptures in front of you. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, as we stand before you, we pray that you would open up our eyes and give us willing hearts to understand and to believe in what you say and the way that you lead us. 
Father, let us leave here this morning different than when we came in. Through Christ, for his glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. As you might have guessed, this is one of the most controversial passages in the history of the church. People have struggled for years to try to understand this. I hope this morning that I can provide just a little bit of insight. There's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about this passage and some of the things related to the Old Testament. But I'm very excited to give it this morning. I'm very excited to give this message. been working very hard for your benefit. And I hope I can help this morning to provide some clarity. The outline I've chosen is three things. I'll try to answer three questions this morning. Number one, who is my enemy? Number two, should I take this literally? Should I take Jesus literally? And number three, what currency should I trade in? Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, go back to verse 20 in chapter 5. There it says, Jesus said, Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then gives case studies to contrast the difference between the righteousness of the existing religious leaders and true righteousness. So he begins each of these six case studies with the Old Testament scripture saying, you have heard. He then illustrates how their understanding had strayed from its true meaning or been twisted over the years. Over the last two weeks, we have looked at four of these case studies. This morning, Jesus will bring up two more examples, though they relate to the same topic. Beginning in verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Maybe you've heard of that before. This comes from Old Testament law. And there are three very important things that we must understand about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here's number one. This law was meant to not promote violence, but to restrain violence. In the ancient world, an injury done to a member of a neighboring tribe was met with retaliation and typically escalated. You steal one cow, we take ten of yours. You kidnap one daughter, we burn your village. Get the point? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth established a restrained punishment equal to the crime. Second thing is this eye for eye business was not the Hatfields and McCoys. Okay? You've heard of the Kentucky-West Virginia family border war after the Civil War. What do I mean by this? Well, Hatfields and McCoys was hillbilly justice. I do not mean that term in a derogatory way. It is a real term. In Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was not one injured family taking matters into their own hands. Vigilantism. Rather, these injuries and offenses were submitted to a court of law, where each party was bound by the judge's decision. 
Okay? We have all kinds of misunderstandings about this eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth thing. And here's the third thing. Again, as, it was re- as we know from what's been recorded, at least from what's been recorded, what is recorded is not literally plucking out eyes or removing teeth, but rather what unfolded were forms of financial compensation that were developed in order to remedy the injury. Okay, so hopefully we clear out some of the brush of what eye for eye, tooth for tooth doesn't mean. Now, next, we have to answer the question, is Jesus changing this law of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? It's a really important question. Because we have seen, right? We've seen Jesus's great respect for the law, the Old Testament law. He doesn't denigrate it. He actually interprets it based on its actual meaning. So is he here doing away with an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth? I don't think so. I don't think so. And yet this is how many Christians understand this passage. I think here, in my opinion, this is what's going on and why he pivots from an eye to an eye. I think what happened is that this mentality of eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, which was meant for civil and criminal cases, it had seeped into their personal relationships. So that based on this law, there was a justification for retaliation or vengeance in marriages or in families or in relationships with neighbors. Jesus is trying to pivot from that. Let's look at the sixth case study, verse 43. That's number five. You heard me say an eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I say do not resist an evil person. And now, number six, which is related to the same topic. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Anybody seen that Bible verse? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Jesus said, you've heard that this was said. And this is what many Christians mistakenly think the Old Testament actually teaches. Well, it's quite evident that this statement was taught by the Pharisees. You've you've heard it said, but it's not in the Bible. Now, love your neighbor is in the Bible, but hate your enemies is not. You see, if the Pharisees were cherry-picking parts of the Old Testament, we might understand how they came to justify hatred for their enemies. God did command Israel to separate from her neighbors and not follow her evil pra- their evil practices. God did promise them victory over their oppressors. And indeed, he destroyed Egypt, who had enslaved them at one time. And finally, there were the wars of justice against the Canaanites, so that God could establish them in the promised land. But in their selective memory, they missed the heart of God in all the Old Testament commands that said to love your, the foreigner in your midst and actually provide for them. There are over 70 such commands like that in the Old Testament. We looked at that on the evening that we spent investing and trying to discern the Christian response to our refugee and immigrant crisis. The Bible did not teach, hate your enemies. 
Jesus is not changing the law at that point, but rather correcting the wrong application of it. And so hopefully with these misperceptions cleared up, it brings us to our first question in our outline, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? Now we might begin here in a geographical way, a geopolitical way. This slide is titled Enemy of the State. Which country do Americans consider their biggest enemy? And um, obviously North Korea is at the highest. Places like Syria or Russia or Cuba. Is that our enemy? Is it ISIS? Is it Muslims? If you're a Republican, is it Democrats? If you're a Democrat, is it Republicans? Is it the gay and lesbian activists? Is it the secularist who attacks the church? I think for most of us, the most relevant enemy is probably someone we interact with on a regular basis. Is it your daughter's boyfriend? Is it your boss? Your enemy may be even a family member. It may be a fellow Christian who attacks your viewpoint. It may be the person you perceive as constantly judging you or someone who falsely blames you. Here's the official definition of an enemy. I found this. Someone who makes your blood boil. Or a little deeper, someone you secretly wish to be punished. Are you privately wish for their demise? Are you hope that they're found out? I suspect most of you have somebody like that in your life that's not living in North Korea, but lives here in Columbus, Ohio. Jesus calls you to love them. But how, Jesus? What does this look like? Go back to your text, if you could. And I want to take a little closer look at these examples and what they represent. They'll help us shape out this meaning. Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, and then gives four illustrations. Number one, if anyone slaps you. A backhanded slap in the ancient world was an insult, an indignity. Jesus is saying, don't trade, I believe, I think, don't trade an insult for insult. If anyone sues you, hand over your cloak as well as your tunic. The tunic was your shirt. That was what was next to your skin. The cloak was like an overcoat, large enough to act as a blanket if traveling overnight. It was protected by law. Your cloak could not be taken from you. Jesus is saying here, I think, don't insist on your rights. Or perhaps don't insist on revenge when injured unjustly. Three, if anyone forces you to go one mile, Roman soldiers at any time, at any moment, could conscript a Jew to carry their pack for a mile. And what Jesus is saying here is don't resist and actually go the extra mile. This saying, by the way, go the extra mile, is so pervasive that it's a part of our common vernacular. Jesus is saying, I think, when treated like a servant, don't resist, but do more than is asked or expected. This was the exact opposite of the Jewish zealots who were looking for a way through the military or through violence 
to throw off Roman oppression. Fourthly, give to the one who asks you. And in Luke's rendering of this same passage, in Luke 6.35, he says, he goes even further, it's more extreme. He says, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back. This was as upside down then as it still is today. And that leads us to our second question. What do we make of this? Are we to take these words literally? And the answer is yes and no. How's that for clarity? Yes, they should be taken literally. Jesus' words should sink deep because they get after the things in our heart that we hold so dear. Money, time, comfort, our image, our drive to be vindicated, our drive to never lose. We should let the full force of Jesus' words hit us. If we are going to follow him, we must construct an entirely new way of relating to those who oppose us. This is the first priority, the heart. But to the right heart, God adds wisdom. And in this sense, the answer is no. Taking Jesus' illustrations in a wooden way, without looking at the entirety of the situation, could lead to scenarios where our giving or our non-resistance can hurt individuals or enable wrong behavior in others, or can leave the innocent unprotected. So when it seems unclear, what do we do? The best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. And when we read the whole balance of Scripture to understand God's heart, we need to read the whole balance of Scripture to understand God's heart. Let me give you a couple of examples that would seem at first glance to contradict the bluntness of Jesus' words. The first example comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5. And here, Paul is giving instructions to the church in Ephesus. They are supporting widows on an active, regular basis. They give to them. But Paul says, in a sense, don't give to whoever asks. There must be requirements before they can be put on this support system. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Here we see Paul actually doesn't give to whoever asks, but places requirements on this. Second example, which is very interesting, because this actually captures both sides of the coin. It's in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And here, the Apostle Paul uh, is preaching in the Greek city of Philippi. And Paul was accused there of pushing for customs unlawful for Romans to practice, a charge that was not true. 
And Paul, as a Roman citizen, could have demanded a fair hearing before any punishment. But he chose not to. He does not retaliate. Let's pick it up in verse 22, Acts 16. The crowd joined in attacking them, Paul and Silas. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Paul does not resist. Now, what happened next, you can read on your own. It's one of the greatest stories of Paul's missionary travels. Let's pick it up in verse 35. Next day, next morning. But when it was day, the magistrates sent to the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid. Because you get in big trouble for this when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. In this case, Paul insists on his rights. Why? We're not sure. One worthy guess is that by putting the authorities on the defensive, it afforded time and protection for these new believers in Philippi. So in providing these examples, am I suggesting the Bible contradicts itself? No, not at all. Jesus is going after the heart. Jesus gets the importance of shock value. You must first have the right heart, the right foundation. Like forms of shock therapy must reset the brain, Jesus must perform shock therapy on the heart. He must get our attention. Because with the right heart and the right foundation, you can add wisdom to that so that love prevails. But without the right foundation, everything built upon it will rot from the inside. Yes, Jesus, by these words, wants to throw you and me into disequilibrium. He wants us to be uncomfortable. Because we so quickly fall into a culture of recompense, revenge, retribution, and record keeping. And we can so quickly justify hatred for our enemies. Why doesn't Jesus himself provide the qualifications, the exceptions, so to speak? Because that was exactly what the religious leaders had been doing for centuries. Making whole traditions out of exceptions to the rule. And that brings us up to our final point now. Our last point of the message. What currency should I be trading in? What underlying value should dictate how I relate to others? Is it money? Is it achievements? Job title? Physical attraction? Even even sexuality? Well, Jesus says in verse 48, in conclusion to this section, Be perfect, therefore, as your 
heavenly Father is perfect. Does perfection here mean without sin? Or does it mean completion? Fulfillment? Perfection in the ancient world could mean that a thing fulfilled its function, its purpose, its design. A hammer is made to drive nails, and when it drives nails, it has fulfilled its function. It is perfect, so to speak. I think that is the emphasis in this verse, rather than sinlessness. Luke, in the same conclusive statement, says it a little differently, and that strengthens our interpretation. He says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We are complete. We fulfill our design when we are like our Father. And mercy is the currency that leads us in how to relate to others. Because that is what God is like. Mercy is not only something we do on a Thursday night when we serve a needy person in the homeless shelter. Mercy is the currency that should color the way I interact with every person I come in contact with. Mercy begins at home with roommates, with a husband, with a wife, with a child. I might throw in your dog as well, but I'm not doing so well in that department. Anyone can love someone who loves them back, Jesus is saying. But what quality about you cannot be explained unless God has come into your life? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. The question which we must ask ourselves then, if we want to know for certain whether we are truly Christian or not, is this. Is there that about me? Is there something about me which cannot be explained in natural terms? As we saw from the response to the movie Hacksaw Ridge, it might just be this quality, loving our enemies, that is the missing part of our witness for Christ for this day, for this day. Having been thrown into disequilibrium for thoughtful Christians, many questions flood into our mind with this call to love our enemies. And to not resist an evil person. Aren't there times we should resist evil as Bonhoeffer did in Nazi Germany? I think the answer is yes. I am not suggesting it will be easy or automatic to know God's heart in any given cultural circumstance. That is why God has given us His Word. His Holy Spirit. The counsel of one another and the counsel from Christians of ages past to help us understand and discern Jesus' meaning for our moment and how we apply it. One thing, however, we can say with clarity is that we are called to be like God and we are called to act on the foundation of love and to make mercy the currency of relating to those who are opposed to us. Truly, this currency cannot be ours. It will be impossible until we first experience what was outlined in the Beatitudes. Remember what we said the first week. The Beatitudes describe the transformation that takes place in the human heart when God breaks in. 
the Beatitudes prepare the soil of our hearts for qualities like mercy to grow in. When we recognize our absolute spiritual and moral bankruptcy. When we begin to mourn the effect of our sin on ourselves and on others. When we begin to get in touch with our own emptiness. Such that we long for justice and righteousness. Then and only then will we understand the currency of mercy. Because we have been shown it by a grace-filled God. When we were his enemy, right? When you opposed him, what did he do? He died for you. He loved you. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, and I think it's verse 10 rather than 8. Oh, thank you. It's already been corrected. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Let me finish this portion of my message with a story that could give us one way of seeing how this could look in our lives. It's a story of a young man named Jared. I found this in a book by Scott McKnight. And this young man, Jared, was reflecting on an experience that happened to him in Great Britain as a college student. He writes this. I was 18. It was my first year in the university. I was coming back on the train and got off at my station. I was reading Martin Luther King for the first time and thinking of Dr. King's talk of the nonviolent resistance of early Christians. I hardly noticed the big guy in a dark tracksuit walking towards me. Still a couple of meters off, he loudly grunted something at me. I quickly tried to piece together what he had said. I definitely heard the word money. Thinking he was asking for a few bucks to catch the train, I got my wallet out. Bad move. Lunging at me with his fist clenched and other hand reaching for something in his pocket, he yelled, give me your money. A number of things flashed through my head. One, I could run, except that I was wearing a heavy backpack, not to mention that he was huge compared to, compared to my towering five foot seven stature. Two, I could hit him. Maybe I could get a cheap shot in if he wants to, and if he wants to have kids, he'll have to adopt. More likely, however, if I hit him, he'll be unaffected like a machine in the Terminator movie. Now, Jared adds here, parenthetically, that he jokes about it now, but there was nothing funny at the time. Those who have been mugged or threatened violently, and some of you have, know how that shock can be numbing. But then he says, and again, this is all just in seconds, all in seconds. He says, Jesus' words flashed through my head. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, the flash of these words felt like warm oil over my head with a tangible sense of how this, a tangible sense of this is how God related to me. For the first time in a situation, I felt grounded. I, wasn't, I was ready to reach into my wallet and give him what I had. But I'm not sure why I didn't. I stuck out my hand and said, I'm Jared. Wide-eyed and with mouth open, he grabbed my hand and grunted, James. Surprised and confused, I said, no, Jared. 
To which he, with a surprise to match mine, said, No, I'm James. Oh, I said. And there was an awkward pause. This was by far the weirdest passing of peace that I had been involved with. But you know what happens when God is working? What happens? Time slows down, doesn't it? When God is working and God is speaking, time slows down. I noticed his arm. The bruising ran all along it. He couldn't have been much more than a couple of years older than me. The next thing to hit me was the stench, like stale urine mixed with cigarettes. As we stood on the bridge suspended above the freeway, James lost into his story at a pace to rival the cars below. He said he was sorry for doing this to me, that he was in a bad way. His mother had recently kicked him out. I asked him to come back to my house and eat and have a shower, get a change of clothes. I tried to help him find a new place to stay. Another awkward pause. Then another young woman, or I'm sorry, young woman in another black tracksuit with a bag under her arm yelled, Go! Go! We gotta go! It was clear she knew James and wanted to get out of there fast. Wait, James, before you go, I said. And I reached into my backpack and grabbed the little New Testament that I always kept with me. It's got my name and my number in it in case you ever change your mind about a place to stay. Now it got ugly again. James' face contorted with anger and rage. And he got right up in my face and began yelling, What do I want a Bible for? I'm going to hell. Without even thinking, I found myself saying, James, we're all going to hell. That's why Jesus came. What happened next, I think, was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. This big guy, who only moments earlier was ready to beat me up, just started crying. I'm not talking one tear sad movie crying. He burst out crying, like a little kid does. Suddenly the pain was so visible in his anger. I didn't know what to do. James' tears totally threw me off balance. I just stood there while his head hung, his shoulders heaved, and he wept. James did not say anything more to me. He tried to stop the tears with snorting and so forth, but he grabbed the Bible and he kept running. After a few paces, he turned, looked me in the eye, waved the Bible at me and nodded. Then he kept running. The woman ran, the woman ran into the waiting car. I could hear her yelling over the music, I got a bag! James ran up as he got into the car and yelled over the music, I got a Bible! I just kept walking. The car drove off. James taught me that there is nothing that shows the world nothing, that there is nothing that shows the world what God is like more clearly than when we love our enemies. I'm aware that enemy love still scandalizes many a fundamentalist and liberal alike. Who wants a savior? Who wants a savior who loves the enemies? That we want to kill. Who wants to witness to the God whose love falls like rain on the just and the unjust 
alike. Who wants a God who longs to heal those who have hurt us so that they hurt no more? And who wants a Christ who comes to us in the pain that we want to run from? This is who our Jesus is. This is who our Jesus is. Loves us, but he also loves the people that are trying to hurt us. Pray with me. Father, this morning, I pray that in our hearts that we would avoid some quick conclusion or some quick judgment about the words of Jesus. But I pray that we would let the full force of his words hit us. Father, may none of us not be afraid of wrestling and struggling with what you've said. And we admit, Father, it's impossible for us to do this on our own. It's impossible for us to forgive on our own. But we know there's a freedom there. There's a healing there. And we pray, Father, that we might more be more deeply rooted and more deeply connected to the mercy that flowed in our lives when we opposed you and Father, when we still oppose you when we still resist you may that mercy just run freely in us and through us impacting the way that we relate to those that have hurt us pray for this Father in your name and we ask as well, Father we ask as well That we can now sing in response. We can pray in response. We can give of our resources in response to such amazing mercy and amazing love. Help us to be still and quiet. To receive from you the power that we need for the glory of Christ. Amen. This This is your challenge for this week. I'd like you to choose one of those people that came to your mind as we defined an enemy. And I want you to find a way this week to bless them. Send them a note, send them a card, buy them some gift cards. Find a way to bless them and do something for them. In addition, I want to challenge you to pray for them every day this week. And I want to ask you to pay attention to what God does in your heart throughout the week. Secondly, I want to encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis. Martin Luther did this twice a day in his regimen. That outline of a prayer takes us to the places that we need to go. There are many of us with small, bitter feelings that we harbor towards others. Perhaps we're not even aware of them. They can grow unseen. As you get to the part of the prayer and pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Stop there. Spend some time in quiet reflection, allowing the Holy Spirit to surface the names of those that you may be holding something against. And pray for the power to forgive. 
and the power to release them. There's an amazing power and an amazing cleansing that will flood and that can flood into your heart when we commit ourselves to a discipline like this before the Lord, letting him take us to the places where we need to go. Thanks for being a part of our body life here this morning. There'll be members of our prayer team up front here as we dismiss. If you need someone to pray for you and pray over you this morning, let's leave with the final blessing. May Christ go before and behind you. May Christ be above and below you. And may Christ be around and surround you, but may Christ, the hope of glory, through his spirit, be in you, living his life through us, for his glory. Amen. 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 Thanks.